You're listening to a previously recorded episode of The Liz in Detroit Show. Hi, it's Liz Tintinelli, and thanks again. Hopefully you're listening for another fabulous show. I'm proud to say that I have Michael Newman with me today. Hi, Newman. How are you, Liz? I'm very good, thank you. No other surprise guests, unfortunately, this evening, but I have somebody great lined up for our next show um, coming up in July, so stay tuned for details on that. Um, But today we thought we'd hit some questions that happen to be coming in through the website more frequently regarding... um, uh, you know, properties in real estate, questions regarding process, mortgage, insurance, all of that stuff. So um, Newman and I are kind of going to talk through what some of those items have been and hopefully we'll provide some valuable information for you all and we'll make you want to call me. You know, Liz, one of the things that we found, um, you know, as you and I were digging through the website last week with the questions, um, the media has done a great job for us, specifically in mentioning Detroit and the fact that there's a lack of viable units in some of the areas, which is scaring a lot of clients to buy right now. But one of the primary questions we always get is regarding the NEZ. Explain a little bit about what an NEZ is, and then let's uh, we can talk about the Park Shelton as a practical example. Of course. Yeah, NEZ was is called the Neighborhood Enterprise Zone, and it was established not only for condominiums, but for designated neighborhoods within the city of Detroit back in um, 2004. I can't remember the total number of neighborhoods designated, but um, first we saw the introduction of the, the condominium NEZ, which gave about a 75% reduction on... Um, the property tax rate, which is pretty huge for only, for owner occupant as well as possible for investor properties, if it applied for that particular project. But we found a need that that not just condominium projects should benefit from this tax abatement. Um, so it was established through several neighborhoods throughout the city of Detroit, which is the an easy um, residential um, tax abatement, which provided about a 10 to 15% property tax reduction on homesteaded property. So you couldn't get it if you bought a property for investment. But if you bought a single-family residence located in any of those areas, you would get an additional 10 to 15% um, tax rate off of your property taxes. But it's up to each individual when they file their um, property transfer homestead exemption that they actually request from the city that paperwork because otherwise they're not going to automatically give it to you. Um, and it's just, you know, several copies of a form uh, that gets filed in the state level so that there's indeed shows up on your tax record that you have a further reduction. So it'll be important on that side to then look for two property tax bills that come out in the summer as well as two in the winter. Got to make sure that you look for those because if you don't, then there could be a default and we don't, no one wants to go into default. We've definitely seen enough of that with the tax foreclosures as it is, but um, keeping an eye out for those tax bills because if you own a property outright, of course, they'll come to you directly. Um, if you have a mortgage, you got to make sure that you notify your mortgage company that they're in place so that they'll know to pay those tax bills. Um, for condominiums, again, I saw the first neighborhood enterprise zone tax abatement start in the 90s, um, and we've already seen a scale of, of those actually already expiring. Um, and typically, they are originally it was originally set for a 12-year tax abatement, 
Um, and then there was an additional extension for an additional three years, so over a total of 15 years. But of the last of those three years, you started to see an incremental increase of your property taxes to kind of go up up to a normal level. But in in those three years, we weren't seeing like a doubling and tripling of taxes. We were seeing probably the rate of inflation are 3%, uh, you know, whichever is greater uh, that of that increase. Um, so... Because overall, we all know, yes, the NEZ was a great incentive for people to buy within the city of Detroit, but it overall is not going to stabilize and bring money forth to the city in the grand scale that we need to build it back up, which is why <clears throat> issuing any new um, projects, the tax abatement, you know, has to go um, through a petition level to be able to do it. So. For example, if it's an existing rental property that it already has generating income for the city in a residential base, they're now seeing that they're not being able to get qualified for the additional tax abatement. Um, Prime example is a project called the Second and Lothrop there in New Center. They were trying and um, they're not going to be able to obtain that NEZ certification. So you just have to be mindful of where those taxes are going. Um, For those properties that do have the tax abatement, you know, for an owner that has it now and that's looking at selling, I've advised many sellers that it's great to um, potentially sell your property when that NEZ is close to expiring. That way the benefit can be passed on to the new buyer in, even if it's only for a remaining year. Um, it can greatly help that new buyer coming in because it'll help stabilize what their taxes will then become after that. I mean, of course, you know, we've got a, you get a reassessment the year after you purchase a property, so you would see an increase, but that increase is likely to be really high because that tax abatement is already in place. Um, when we talk about the Park Shelton, um, it too has a tax abatement on its units. The remaining units that I have to sell actually have 12 years left instead of the 15. Why not the 15? And this is actually something I discovered uh, this year. They don't have the total 15 because um, of the developer inventory that they did not convert when the the economy took a downturn and the developer decided to rent out, the state was like, hey, you can't keep this tax abatement for forever. You know, if you don't pull them on these remaining units, which was about 75 units now, you run the risk of losing them for all of your remaining units. So in 2013, the developer actually had to pull all of the NEZ certificates for all of its remaining developer-owned units that weren't sold um, then. So now that we're selling off the remaining units now in 2016, you have three years you know, um, off of that total 15-year tax abatement. So what we are able to um, offer individuals that buy developer-owned units that had um, or that have the tax abatement is their tax abatement is good until 2028 for all of those remaining units. So it's a 12-year abatement. Okay, so, so that's with a lot. That, I know that's right. a lot. Well, no, it's a lot, but mm-hmm. it's exactly the information because there was many questions that we were getting, and it's 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 great that you were able to touch on those specific questions. You know, we know pretty much right now Detroit has the highest property tax rates of any major city in the country. I think our mills are right around 67.76, Equated to about 6%, correct, of your state um, SEV, state equalized value, correct. And so your NEZ 
if you're qualified, you're saying it reduces it by about 75%? Yeah, depending upon the kind of NEZ it is, as I specified, you know, is it the project um, condominium uh, NEZ abatement, which is a 75% reduction, or is it off of the single-family residence, which is more like a 10 or 15% reduction? But it's, it's a huge benefit, you know, and with purchase prices where they are right now at the Park Shelton, you know, that makes it more economically possible for investors and owners alike because if they're looking at a purchase of $300,000 plus for where our two-bedroom units are, you know, they're looking at tax bills no greater than about 2200 a year for 12 years. I mean, that's that's considerably lower than if they were above six. Well, if you were in Royal Oak and you're looking at comparable prices from Three to four hundred thousand dollars. You're paying close to eight thousand dollars per year, or more, or more, in property taxes alone, which mm-hmm. is why people are actually looking at Detroit again. Um, just to follow up one more time on the NEZ. Yes, is the final determination on the NEZ made at the city level, state level, or is it a federal program? You have to apply for it. Um, it's a state tax abatement. So you have to apply for it. Usually when I do all the filings that file through the state um, tax uh, division um, when we're filing all of this stuff. So um, you have to apply for it. City council, for a new project, city council has to actually approve the actual abatement um, for it to be applied on the property. But yeah, it comes from a state level. So it's just a lot of bureaucracy. uh, But once it's there, it's locked in for at least 12 to 15 years. Correct, and it's beneficial for for developers when they're looking at purchasing a property and converting it to condominiums to look at that very very, you know, at the first stage of the whole development process because it you know it can take anywhere from, you know, three to six months to get that designation approved if it's all if it's all possible, and I think that can make a really big impact on whether or not a project can work financially um, or not. All right. So yeah. with that, you know, I know those of you that are listening, um, you can turn it back in if you tuned it out because the NEZ was just wah, not wah, very, wah, 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 It's wah. a lot of inside baseball, as we call it. Uh, but that's great. That's a lot of good information. Um, second, one of the things we're finding now, especially in a low market inventory, is the highest and best. And the clients that you've dealt with, the clients I've dealt with, and one of the questions we get is – there's a, I think, a misperception out there that highest and best means that you're just coming in with the highest dollar amount. Give me your thoughts on what highest and best, how it affects you as an agent, both as a selling agent or a listing agent and as a buyer's agent. It's very important to remember when you get into a situation with highest and best um, that Whoever's issuing it, and I've been on both sides of the coin where I've represented a seller where we've got multiple offers, as well as on the buyer side, you know, trying to advise them how best to navigate when such arises. And I'll first touch on the approach from a seller. Every situation um, that you engage in with each and indiv- each seller is individual. You have to remember that your fiduciary duties are to that particular individual. You can impress upon them the guidance of having been in situations before and tell them, this is what I did in this situation, but this is your property, your sale, and you dictate to me what it is that you want. Because there's some sellers that, you know, based on their circumstances, they're like, you know, 
yeah, we got multiple offers, but this first offer, it might not be the highest, but these people are great. You know, they're in, the information they provided is great. You know, they sound like they're sound buyers, and I got a good read on them. And you know what? I'm going to take that offer. It is the seller's decision, not me as an agent. And, you know, and I, I've get, been hit on many sides from other agents when I'm representing a seller, and that happens. Like, well, why didn't you give Hyatt a best? You just took the first offer. I'm like, because you know what? The circumstances were, it's a great, strong offer. And you don't necessarily have to jump up, you know, the purchase price higher just to be able to get a better buyer. So again, every seller's different as far as what they they want and what their expectations are. And of course those sellers are like, well, shoot, if I can get $20,000 above my list price, why not? That's a completely different approach, but it's just remembering who is in control of the situation. You know, we work for our sellers and our sellers inevitably are going to want, are going to be the ones that want to dictate how that, how that finishes out because it's it affects their bottom line at the end of the day. Well, if, if say you had three competing offers. Mm-hmm. You had cash offer at a lower dollar amount, a VA offer at a higher dollar amount, and an FHA equal. Again, it depends upon the property, you know, um, and 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 weighing out, you know, who they've chosen for their lender, how much money are they putting down. Did the buyers lead out any contingencies whatsoever in the event if they tried to overshoot the offer and um, if there might be issues with appraisal? These are all things you have to look at. Um, I know our real estate one purchase agreement explicitly says when you pick the mortgage um, checkbox of what kind of purchase you're offering, cash or mortgage, we have a clause in there that states – um, if it doesn't appraise for the offering price, you know, the buyer can declare the property or the offer null and void and cancel the contract. I don't think most buyers really want it to go to that. But when it comes to certain situations where, you know, you've got a property listed at 150 and it's hot and you've got people bidding, you know, twenty or $30,000 higher, but your guy who really needs that mortgage and doesn't have a whole lot of money, you know, they they might be more hindered upon what that appraisal value because they just can't make up the difference in cash because they don't have it. So, yeah, you got to weigh all the options. Sometimes taking the cash offer that might be a little bit less can be the easiest route if they're not going to demand for an appraisal and they want it quick, done quickly and close quickly. You know, um, that could be the best solution. Or if there's not going to be an issue with an appraisal and a buyer has, has stipulated in their offer that, they might be going FHA, but they're putting over 20% down, even though, you know, they look stronger because their actual amount that they're looking to finance is a lot less. Um, you know, VA, it's tough because you're looking at 100% financing. So you have to sometimes ask the questions, you know, you know, do they have the ability to make up any difference if the appraisal comes in lower? And would that even be allowable with their financing? So there's a lot of questions you have to ask. Um, and as a, you know, and as a listing agent, you, that's your job. You've got to investigate each offer to the best of your ability for your seller to make sure that you're, you're indeed are putting forth the best information for the best offer for them to, to, to choose. And that's what they look for you to do. So you would agree then that <clears throat> there is not this magic pill out there no. saying if you throw it right on. No. Well, on the buyer side, you talked about being the selling agent or list, well, the listing agent mm-hmm. uh, working for the sellers. 
on the buyer side, being involved in the highest and best, what are some of the things that you recommend to your clients to come in as even sweeteners or something that differentiates them when they're trying to get that offer? Again, just as each seller is different, every situation with the buyer is different. Um, you know, I have buyers that want to be conservative with um, what they may want to put down for a mortgage. Say they can go conventional, but they want to choose the route, and it's a it's a warrantable property, whether it be a condo or a single-family residence. You know, they don't want to put more money down. So say, you know, they only want to put down 5%. Um, and don't want to put down 20 just based on their circumstances, what works best for their needs and the mortgage that they have, have, have chosen to go with. But they might have, you know, possibly an additional pool of resources. So if they might get into a highest and best situation, but on paper, it looks like they're only putting 5% down. So the, the deficit between the offering price and what they're mortgaging is less, you know, or greater. Yeah. Uh, but they might stick in a clause like, hey, to, to sharpen our offer, you know, we um, if it appraises for less, we're willing to make up that difference. Sometimes you have buyers that are willing to do that, or they'll say, we'll be willing to make up the difference up to a certain dollar amount. Um, or I've worked with other buyers that they're like, you know, I want this property bad enough that I'm willing to beat out any other offer by a certain amount. So I, what's called an escalation clause, they'll throw that in there in hopes that that will be enticing to a seller. We're like, hey, we we are prepared to go above our offering price by so many um, thousands of dollars not to exceed a certain point to just to show that we have a range of our purchasability that we're willing to work with to be able to ensure that we can get this property and demonstrate to the seller that we have strength with what we're proposing. Um, another, another way to... Uh, make your offer enticing is to actually put a larger earnest money deposit down. Uh, I'm more encouraging of my buyers to do that after they've done their inspection contingency versus before, because if anything arises in that inspection that could somehow have the deal go south and it's a question of release of that monies, I don't want my buyers to be tied into losing thousands of dollars. You know, so oftentimes that EMD will be increased after release of the inspection contingency because that makes sense. Because then that's, for the most part, your clear sailing at that point. So you start then basically with your standard $1,000 earnest money deposit. And then we'll put it in there that we'll increase it to 5000 pending inspection or pending the results of the inspection. Again, I'm, I'm more selective on what the earnest money deposit is, more reflective of what the actual offering uh prices so I make it more or less reflective of that. Sometimes it's usually more around one percent of the offering price than it is just a thousand dollars. Because to me a thousand dollars a thousand dollars on a fifty thousand dollar property can be strong, but it's not necessarily strong for a three hundred thousand dollar property. And I think, you know, again, a seller's agent is going to look for strength potentially in that possible deposit as well. You know, and that leads down the road to um I think we want to get into a more litigious discussion. Um, have somebody come in. Uh, we were talking about that because there is the impression when it comes to EMD that you just lose it and that there's no claim on it. And just like um, a buyer says, well, I'm not prepared to lose it. You know, I want to contest that. Mm-hmm. Um, the seller is locked in on an EMD also because if they're contesting it also saying we're not giving it back and there, 
um, you know, you really can't just list your house again and say because you're still under contract essentially at that point well, until I've, that's adjudicated or resolved. Well, in all honesty, you, you, it, a property can be rest, relisted by a seller when they haven't even released the EMD of another because um, it could be an – because I, I actually spoke about this with the manager, and, and a seller can inevitably relist. It's not in their best interest to do that if you've got an upset buyer that decides to file lien for whatever reason on the property. But it's, um, I, 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 you know, unfortunate, you know, falling into situations of lawsuit is in some cases inevitable. I mean, it can, it hap- it can happen. Um, I try to err in the situation to disclose as much as possible with either party that benefits them the most in the event that that may arise to try to avoid the possible situation. But again, you can't cover every every ground. So it's important on both sides of the transaction as an agent, whichever you're falling, to really go over the issues of possible default with the buyer. You know, tell them like, you have these set timelines for your mortgage contingency and your inspection contingency for a reason. They're in a contract. They're not to be taken lightly. Oftentimes people think, you know, just because they decide to back out during their private inspection, that gives potential just cause for them to back out. It's not necessarily the case. Correct. If you've got a seller who doesn't want to do it and doesn't want to sign the release, guess what? You can't automatically get your money back. And if your buyer's agent gives it back to you anyway – they're in so much more trouble yeah, if they do breach. that. So yeah. it's kind of crazy. All right. So yeah. and the last question then on highest and best and just offers in general. Are yeah. you seeing an increase of requests by buyer's agents to present in person? I'm not, actually. On occasion it happens, but not. it's not the norm. You know, um, and it really depends upon the seller. Some sellers, you know, that's why they feel they have an agent is they don't necessarily want to have that direct contact with the buyer. Um, But other sellers might be open to it. So it's. um, So you're not seeing an increase. Nope. All right. I haven't. I really haven't. And especially when it comes to situations with um, the highest and best. I mean, I would love to speak with an agent who gets into a highest and best situation who actually meets with each buyer. When it comes to that, that would be an amazing afternoon. Um, that would be pretty incredible. But I've I've never come to a situation where that is. It sounds like a reality show. It does. But we could I've seen we it in the movies. <laughs> but um, no, I mean, can that because that can sometimes lay things right on the line and be like, okay, we really want this, and this is what we're prepared to do. Is this something that you're willing to agree to? And if so, we can seal this deal today. Yeah, and sometimes that's all it takes because, as you and I both know, it's hard to not let the ego get in the way with certain yes. transactions. And sometimes you forget who it is that you're actually working for. Is it your ego? Is it your client? So, And uh, you know what? It's funny because you and I have both, like you just said, over the mm-hmm. past couple of weeks have dealt with that. You yeah. know – Going into you know what's ego and when somebody's actually looking out for the best interests of the client, right? And there are times. So we're looking also at title, right? Now, one of the questions that we got this week Mm -hmm. is when it comes to title, when it comes to closings, Mm -hmm. right? Do you recommend split closings or do you just like to use just one title company? It really depends upon the transaction. 
Um, if there's issues, I'm, I'm running into a situation right now with a particular property where there um, are t- possible title blemishes, which which is going to involve um, possible quieting of title. And I would I would say that in lieu of that of that particular situation, we're erring towards the title company and attorneys that are involved with clearing up that particular situation to handle both sides. Um, but it, you know, if, if you've got two competent title companies, <laughs> it's, <laughs> we not, can't it's say usually, the name. you know, it's really, it's really not an issue. Um, you know, because at the end, let's hope that everybody wants to work together. And I haven't necessarily had too many conflicts when it comes with split title. Sometimes it's a, a tug of war regarding who's going to host it at whose office based on availability of remote closers and location. But, um, no, I mean, I, I'm all, I'm off. I, I, I wasn't for it a while ago and now I'm like, it really doesn't make a difference. So I'm it's not, just it's really, it's based on what, but the again, client. it's not me. It's what my client wants. Right. So it's what they, you know, that what they choose to do. And I don't find there's a reason to choose one title company over another based on saving of fees. I've run into that before, and that ended up being a nightmare because I had a seller that picked a cheap title company because they were proposing like inexpensive fees, and they it was awful. They didn't do their it was just they didn't do their homework. They didn't know what they were doing. They were trying to call the city of Detroit, and any title company knows you can't call the city of Detroit. Right. You have to have runners that go down and get paperwork. I mean, it was uh, it was ugly. Well, we had that nightmare closing. Uh, it was just like about two months ago um, on the east side of Detroit property where it turns out they had a closer, a remote closer. The company was out of Colorado, and it wasn't even a closer. Oh. It was a notary. <clears throat> Guys, be very, very careful when you're dealing with asset management companies who are dealing with sellers that are out of state who, again, are trying to penny pinch and, yes, will pick an out-of-state closer. And this might be more specific to Wayne County than any other county in Michigan just because of – what you know some of the challenges we're still working through with Wayne County and title and deeds and things but um it was pretty abhorrible what occurred to our client the buyer regarding getting information um getting guidance and inevitably paying for a title policy with you know which took them what two months after closing to get correct we were still waiting on that deed. um just and, and then it stopped the whole process for this buyer he couldn't get a water meter put on because there's a water meter removed and it was just all this all this stuff so you have to be really really careful and i think in in hindsight regardless of the money we sh- we aired to side with the seller's title because we thought it would be quicker. And then we found out that they weren't even using an in-state title company. And that's when our jaws dropped. And we were we actually had closing delayed for two and a half weeks. Yes. Because they couldn't even get things together and, and make any progress with even contacting Wayne County. So um, to you, buyer out there, thank you for holding strong. And, you know, we are there to support you the whole way. And and thereafter. Um, but yeah, um, that's really, really scary. So know what you're buying into. And um, in that particular case, if it's going to cost you more money to pay for your own title insurance, do it. At the end of the day, it's saving yourself the property that you want and getting it. You know, and that leads to other as we go down um, within the next few episodes, 
we're going to have somebody from title come in and that yes. it'll be a lot more inside baseball, but it's what a lot of people don't understand about title work and what the importance of what it actually does. So we've already started putting that together to piggyback on that with title. One of the other questions we received is who exactly is responsible for paying the commissions to the agents in Michigan. It's the seller people. Yeah. Um, other states, it's different. You know, they have attorneys that draft up um, most of the contracts, and there's a reduced commission across the board for real estate agents. But in Michigan, you know, we're doing a lot of the legwork. So our commission um, is covered on the seller side, not on the buyer side. And that sometimes is confusing to know where things are coming from. Um, I've had buyers get confused because when they write earnest money deposits, made out to Real Estate One because Real Estate One has an escrow holding company. Um, they think because the commissions get deducted from the retaining of that earnest money deposit that the buyers are in turn paying for it. Um, but it, it's not. It's actually taken out of the seller's proceeds, and it's not an additional payment that the buyers have to pay for. Now, I will make a note that in some instances where commissions are less – and, you know, and agents like myself that work very hard, you know, I definitely set a minimum for what I will accept on a commission for the work that I put forth. So if I run into a situation where a buyer finds a property, you know, for sale by owner or for properties listed for less than the commission that I would otherwise take, I immediately go to my buyers and say, like, you know, this is the commission that the seller's giving out, but this is this is what I deserve and this is what I get, Um are you comfortable with making up the difference at closing? And, you know, I haven't had a seller or a buyer, excuse me, say no ever on that situation. So it is possible you've seen offers come through where the sellers will counter your purchase agreement or your offer saying, okay, but we want this cut down on the commission. That I haven't had happen, actually. Oh, no, maybe I have. Uh, yeah. Well, no, it's usually it's not usually at the time of contract acceptance. It's usually a situation when you're trying to close and you're you're hours away from the from the closing table, and there's a shortfall of five hundred dollars, and everybody's looking to like get this thing to close. So between mortgage lender, buyers agents, everybody's poning up money to make up that difference. So I've seen that happen, but I've never seen a seller say, "I'll only accept this offer." You know, um, if commissions are less absolutely not and i wouldn't i wouldn't advise for a buyer to even get into a situation with a seller like that because that automatically sends red flags to me of what possibly the outcome of that transaction could be well it makes an interesting and a very valid point of what you said you know what you deserve Mm -hmm. and you and i have talked at length um that one of the things that we don't do at lizindetroit.com is negotiate our value no and it's taken a while you know i mean i i want I feel I'm fair. I feel, you know, uh, people get a lot when they work with me, and I want them to, to feel that as if they're, they're, they're being represented the best by having me as their agent and never even consider that what, um, you know, what I get paid for is by any means an exorbitant, unjustified amount of money. All right. One of the other emails I received, it was a long, convoluted question, but it's going to break down to this. When it comes to seller concessions, mm-hmm. seller concessions, I want you to explain a little bit what a seller concession is and how it does not necessarily affect the contract price. 
I've seen seller concessions come in play in various times of negotiating a contract. Sometimes if we, um, this is usually in cases where you're not necessarily up against multiple offers, but you've got a really great strong buyer who is willing to um, pay for a given property, but coming up with all the money might be a little bit of a shortfall. Say like they know they have to go in and buy a bunch of new appliances and between their closing costs and their down payment, they're going to be a little bit short. I've seen situations where buyers will come in and be like, okay, I'll offer you this full price, but I would appreciate a kickback at, um, at the closing table of so many thousands of dollars, you know, to assist towards my payments. And it usually goes towards a buyer's, you know, prepaid closing costs or discount points on their loan. I've seen that occur um, less now as I did. And it's amazing how the stage of real estate kind of like shifts. There was a time when concessions were a very, very big part of the negotiating process and not so much now where I've seen it more come into play now where um, you've uh, you've done your inspection. You know, you want to move forward, but there's just a few things that you really didn't expect to be a big issue on um, in the inspection that could give you concern on what you're going to have to pay additionally after you get this property to get these things fixed. And, you know, you've got a seller who's pretty darn animate that they want to sell this thing as is. But you're like, well, I do, but these are things that we came across in the inspection that really need to get fixed. How do we resolve this? You know, we want to move forward, but how do we get, you know, how do we get through this process? And so oftentimes... A concession, a monetary concession, is the best answer for that to appease a buyer. So, I'm I've always err on the part if if I'm representing a buyer and these kind of issues rise up, you rarely ever want to put it to the seller to fix those issues if they need to be fixed because you as a buyer don't know how they're going to do them, even though you may be able to inspect them. A lot of the times, it's just the easiest to be like, okay, I'll forget. I'll forgive that this issue arises if we can get a little bit of compensation um, off of closing costs at closing, knowing that I'm going to go through and get it fixed myself. Um, and I see I see a lot of that more, or in instances of an you know of an of an appraisal, um, if you call it kind of I, I, it's more or less a. a a concession versus a seller concession. You know, I've got a buyer who really wants this property. You know, who's given forth every best effort, demonstrated every way along the process that he wants it to go through. And, you know, unfortunately, we got an appraisal that came, you know, $10,000 less than our list price. But this buyer really wants it, you know. So I've seen where a buyer is comfortable and be like, okay, I know it appraised for this and I know you want, I know it appraised for A and I know you really want B, but I'll give you A and a half to just make this go through. And oftentimes that works. So you've got a buyer that's actually putting forth an additional amount and conceding more of their funds to make a deal happen. You know? All right. So one of the things that came out today, um, I believe it was the news of the free press, was they are now going to, you know, like with Sherwood Forest or Palmer, Detroit, right around Detroit Golf Club, they have essentially an HOA fee that's not an HOA fee, you know, where they pay an extra 250 to three hundred and fifty dollars to add security and trash. Are you familiar? A year. A year. Yeah. 
right? And mm-hmm. the city is now going to lump that into their taxes, each individual homeowner, mm-hmm. right? So it now essentially becomes a fee. And if they're behind on their property taxes, they can now foreclose Based if they don't that pay that fee. Interesting. Uh, do you have a thought on that as we wrap up today? Well, it's nice to, I mean, I know in several communities where it's an honor, it's an honor system to want to pay that fee or not. You know, um, I think when you're getting, and, and we're at a point right now where we're really trying to build strength back up into certain communities that might have had, you know, a downfall, just as our financial market had a downfall. And kind of a way to rebuilding these communities back up is through certain systems to being put in place. And my only thoughts that that's being integrated into the taxes because it's showing that it's a much bigger importance and that it's it's not necessarily a voluntary fee, but it should be something that everybody should be required to pay to ensure that everyone is equally putting forth the efforts to keeping the community strong. So, you know, as much as I, you know, fees kind of suck, I see the importance sometimes of having those be incorporated and yes, be a part of property taxes. And I'd be willing to pay the same, you know, um, knowing that those indeed would be paid for and addressed. Okay. You know what? We had other questions coming through, but we're running short of time. Um, I do want to remind people of a few things. One, you can find us on Facebook at lizindetroit.com. You can find us on the web at www.lizindetroit.com. And on Twitter, at Liz in Detroit. Um, Liz, you've got a few things coming up just as um, a summer thing. We've got the infatuations on July 22nd Ooh. at Shane Park with Tower of Power and Sheila E. You It'll have, be a great one. How about you? Anything good coming up? I really am going to try to stand out and get tickets for Diana Ross when they come available July 1st. You're coming out? I think that's a bucket list. That's a bucket list concert as far as I'm concerned. Um, um, Also, thanks to you, Newman. Mm -hmm. Looking forward to seeing Sting and Peter Gabriel tomorrow night at the Palace. Yeah, that should be a lot of fun. Um, no, this there's so much great things going still on this summer. It, it still feels like it's at at the beginning um, of of its whole cycle of life, but uh, I'm I'm hoping to take more advantage of the outside than I have in years past. So this is a year that I hope to ride more, see more concerts, and be outside more. Um, but of course. Hopefully, we'll keep you guys in tune for the next show, which is, do we have a date? July 13th. Wonderful, July 13th. I'm hoping I'm going to secure a fabulous representative who does a lot of work for Habitat Humanity, um, Jennifer Reinhardt. Jennifer, I know you're on vacation, so you're, I'm, I'm, I'm forcing you into this right now because you're coming back in July. But I would love it for you to be on our show on the 13th and talk about your most recent on June 25th, um, six-month planning event. Jennifer worked on the Detroit Build block, which occurred in the Jefferson Chalmers area. And three homes actually got grant funds to do some rehabilitation work. And it's a really fantastic story, and there's really great things for the, for the community to hear about ways that you can potentially um, get grant funds for similar renovations. So I'm really looking forward to having her on the show and talk about that. All right. With that, Liz, thanks for your time today answering the questions. Thanks, everyone. See We're you next time. That. See you. 
You're listening to a previously recorded episode of The Liz in Detroit Show. 